This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I don't need to tell you it's been a pretty topsy-turvy year as the world adjusts to a variety of volatile circumstances affecting all of our lives, skyrocketing inflation, living with COVID, the effects of climate change, transitioning to renewable energy, and the war in Ukraine, just to name a few. We're all feeling it, but here to help break it all down and give us an idea of how 2023 is shaping up is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great. 2022, what a year. Yes, who would have um, thought that we would go through such calamity and still end up with some of the best numbers that the province has ever seen uh, when it comes to unemployment. Um, Unemployment rate fell to 8.2% in September, the lowest rate since records began in 1976. Um, That housing starts to be up 44% for the first three quarters of the year. Um, Capital investment is up. Um, Provincial debt is down. Who would think? Who would think indeed? And yet all of us are feeling this strain, I would imagine. You know what I'm saying? From uh, high interest rates, uh, rising cost of living, grocery and fuel prices just skyrocketing left, right and center. So I I, want to start with interest rates, though. What did interest rates look like heading into uh, 2022 and where are they now? Uh, So a really key indicator of interest rates um, is something called is the bond market. So the bond market is where the governments, uh, various governments, and federal, provincial, etc., plus the banks and insurance companies go to borrow money, and it's where mutual funds and pension funds lend money. So, as these, you know, relatively smart individuals uh, managing billions of dollars, in some cases trillions are uh, pooling their money back and forth and borrowing from each other, it gives us an indication of what interest rates look like uh, going forward. So what we're seeing at the moment is that long-term interest rates are actually lower than short-term interest rates, meaning that interest rates that um, one would expect to be able to borrow uh, at uh, if you were buying a, if you were issuing a, a five-year loan, for example, and you were in the province of Newfoundland, the interest rate that you would get would be lower than if you issued a um, a bond that would mature in two years. Now, this is not being reflected in GICs, by the way, and it's not being reflected in mortgages. But it is a great uh, yet, and 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 I really want to say the word yet because it tends to be that the bond market will predict what the interest rates will be in the future. So if the if the bond market is saying interest rates are going to be lower in the future, which is what it's currently indicating. It means then that uh, some of this inflation that we've been looking at is going to dissipate or at least stop increasing. It doesn't necessarily mean that the price of a pound of butter is going to come down from $6 a pound, um, but it will stop increasing at the rate that it has been. Um, and in the same way, we may see a leveling off to some degree with a slight decrease in things like uh, GIC and mortgage rates um, happening. So it looks like the worst of the uh, interest rate increases have occurred so far, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get a dramatic decline back to where we was, we were, where we were two, three years ago. 
So a leveling off, perhaps? A leveling off might be a better way to look at it. Um, it's, it also says for those, like you and I had a long chat there, uh, I think it was November of last year, talking about how people should lock in. Uh, anybody who's on a variable mortgage should look at locking in um, you know, a five-year term or at least a three-year term um, when it came to, to their mortgage. And uh, if somebody is walking in the door today, I would say more look at if, if, if you're worried about interest rates going up higher in the short run. And many people are stuck with variable rates that have increased in some cases up to 60%. So, you know, that's a pretty brutal figure to have your mortgage go up by that amount. Um, then, you know, if you're going to lock in, look at, look at the three-year number uh, and compare it to the five-year number. Uh, because uh, if if the bond market is correct, and it's it's usually correct, but not always, then it indicates interest rates just should be starting to dissipate uh, more in the next three years than they have been going up over the last year. So t- walk us back a little bit. Why would the Bank of Canada make these kinds of moves? Um, so, yeah, let's go back all the way to when COVID was happening. So when COVID first hit and the um, uh, economies essentially around the world shut down, um, the question was how far would the economies collapse? And that's why the various governments around the world said we just need to pay people to stay home and keep the economy running and keep goods and services running. But along the way, we also had China, which is the great manufacturer of everything, um, you know, Walmart, um, literally ex- imports something in the order of about 70% of its goods from China alone. So it shut down and it meant then that the, the supply of goods in particular, um, uh, that whole supply chain was disrupted. It, it meant that even to today, where if you go into some hardware source and say, I need to buy such and such a wrench, there's maybe five of them that are in the stack. As opposed to, you know, five years ago, it would have been 25 or 30. So between the impetus that was caused by uh, or the impulse that was caused by the injection of cash to maintain uh, the economy, plus the shortages that showed up, uh, basically, we, we uh, it caused inflation to arise. That there's no there's no competition to talk about. You know, years ago, you could go to buy a car on Camount Road. And you go to one dealer and they give you one price and say, Here, here's what we got on the lot. Go down the street to another dealer and you can get them competing against each other. Right now, it's if you want to buy a car, is here's what's coming in on the boat. If you don't like the color, too bad. And if you want to negotiate the price, we've got 10 people behind you who are not going to negotiate the price. So these shortages, lack of competition, et cetera, contribute to inflation. On top of that, we've had the great resignation. That is, many uh, baby boomers in particular have uh, re, uh, have uh, retired, and there are not enough um, individuals behind them to replace them. So we have chronic labor shortages, not just in uh, Newfoundland, but also um, across Canada and throughout North America and indeed many cases throughout the world. So all of the factors then that contribute to prices being pushed up are in full force. In order to combat that, um, the federal government is trying to slow down demand. So as long as people want to continue to make their houses bigger, want to buy lumber, um, uh, need concrete port, etc., um, then the demand stays high. But if they raise interest rates to the level that people will think second uh, thoughts about making that consumption or borrowing money to do to make that purchase or expansion of their house, then you get less demand, and then that causes prices to fall. That's the grand theory 
behind it. So raising interest rates is like putting on a set of brakes uh, on the economy. Um, unfortunately, it takes a period of time for those brakes to take effect. It usually is six months after the first interest rate increase is when we start to see an, a, a slowdown in the economy. And then once you start to slow down the economy, the magic question is, are you slowing it down too much? Um, and again, with the fact that when you stop raising interest rates, the interest rate increase will continue to have an effect for the next six months um, means that it's very difficult to sort of feather the economy down, to slow it down and not put it into a full-on recession. That's the state that we're in right now. Because these rate hikes were coming, you know, in fairly quick succession, uh, presumably because, you know, they weren't seeing the impact of that. But you're saying if it if it takes a little while to see that effect, is it having the desired effect? Are, are we heading towards recession? It, does it go too far? Well, the bond market is saying that we're definitely going to see a slowdown. And that's why it's saying that the, uh, the bond market is willing to, to lend the provincial government uh, – uh, money at a lower interest rate if they lock in for five years than if they only lock in for three years. Um, so, and that suggests that the economy will at least slow, if not go into a recession itself. But the reason why the um, Central Bank of Canada and others around the world uh, raise interest rates so much is that they just wanted to absolutely slam on the brakes as hard as they possibly could. Uh, without completely destroying the economy. So if they if they did all of that interest rate increase in one go, it would have caused such a shock to the economy that it would almost guarantee that we'd be in a recession. Whereas now they, they've been uh, adjusting the rate up rap- more rapidly than they've ever done before, um, but at a level that they think is just enough to slow down the economy without putting it into a full-on recession. So it's about reducing consumption because there's not a lot we can do about those supply chain issues that you pointed out. Well, there hasn't been. So the what we're seeing now is um, that the supply chain issues, um, and not just because of COVID, but also because of the Ukrainian war, um, we're, we're getting different supply chains to be set up. So quite frankly, a lot of the manufacturing that was happening in China is now moving to Mexico. A lot of the chip production, et cetera, that um, held up the sale of, of automobiles, for example, that's getting uh, onshored into the United States to some degree, but also um, uh, it's, it's being re-geared away from, um, you know, exporters. And a lot of the metals that, uh, that we need for the next phase, so, so just let me skip because the other, the other contribution to stimulus has been the various governments around the world, notably the United States, announcing that they want green energy. So in order to get green energy, they, they introduced what's called the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which ironically has nothing to do with reducing inflation. It's a spending program that's incredibly stimulative to the economy that says that we need all sorts of metals in order to rebuild the uh, power lines and uh, convert from carbon-based energy over to something that is not carbon-based energy. So in, in doing that spending program, we need um, metals such as copper, nickel, zinc, vanadium, lithium, uranium, iron ore, etc. And the traditional providers of that have been, uh, to a large extent, the Russians and the Chinese, both of which now have been deemed to be undesirable and unreliable partners. And so there's a shift happening and a new stimulus happening in the worldwide economy 
to which the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is participating uh, quite strongly. So it's it's a couple of factors. It's been the it's been the supply chain as well. Now, so in changing that in in the supply chain easing, on top of the Chinese government now reopening um, due to the effect of rebellion of its citizens in the last month. Um, that we should start to see more manufactured goods um, back on the shelves over the next six to eight months. Our guest today on On Target is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. And when we come back, I want to ask you whether or not the uh, Bank of Canada is done and and what kind of factors are um, playing into fuel prices as well uh, right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth here in St. John's. And uh, we've been talking about the interest rates and the effect that that's having. Is the Bank of Canada done? Some people now saying that this could be it? Uh, it's unlikely that they're done completely. It is more likely that they're, they will pause here at, uh, in the new year. Um, more, uh, and again, more than likely because the rate of increases have been so rapid over the last period of time and that we're starting to see some of the supply lines, um, uh, supply chain be uh, repaired. So I, I, would, I would be surprised if, if there were dramatic increases in interest rates as quickly as we have seen as of late, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one or two increases more. Big ones <laughs> or small ones? <laughs> or small ones, yes. Yeah, and I should have actually, I should have started this conversation saying, you know, looking back on, on 2022, it's been an extraordinary time, but I really am, I have not been as optimistic about the province um, as I am right now in the, you know, over 35 years that I've been in business. Um, this, the, the conversion over to green energy um, has so many, put, has put the province into such an advantageous position, um, hopefully that we'll be able to take advantage of. Um, but, and ironically, one of the, the you know, we're, we're familiar with the uh, green hydrogen project on the west coast of the island, but that's only a very, very small part of it. This Inflation Reduction Act that uh, the U.S. brought in provides credits to U.S. taxpayers for metals that have been mined in Canada. That's, and, and when it comes to those metals that I've talked about, copper, for example, over the next, uh, well, between now and 2050, the world needs as much copper as has been mined in all the history of humanity. And we do not have those um, mines um, located, you know, built, uh, et cetera. But the province of Newfoundland has some very interesting copper deposits. Some of them may be feasible. We have cobalt. And uh, recently we had uh, a nickel deal with Tesla because Tesla buyers uh, would prefer to have the automobile made out of metals that did not require coal to smelt them. And the um, nickel coming from Labrador is smelted via beta spare electrical power. Um, and overall, the province is, is ideally located between the U.S. and Europe. It has many deep harbors. Um, it has the uh, woods roads to access 
the interior, particularly on the island. And it has a lot of area in Labrador that has not been explored, but looks like that there are metals up there. So we, we really are uh, ideally positioned to take advantage of this conversion from green energy. Economic good news, but is it environmental good news? Oh, heavens, yes. I mean, the, the well, let me rephrase that. Uh, there's, there's nothing that you cannot do that does not affect the environment in, in some way. Um, there's no question that right now a lot of the cobalt, for example, that is actually used in batteries are coming from, play, from the Congo, and many of the uh, mines in the Congo are using child labor. So what do you do about that, right? You obviously have to go find uh, another source of cobalt. Um, other than that, we, we certainly don't want to be um, converting over on the backs of children. And ironically as well, the conversion to green energy is actually driving up the price of oil. Uh, the reason why that's happening is that although the rate of conversion to green energy is reasonably high, it's not as high as the demand for oil is still growing because many poor people around the world cannot afford a $65,000 Tesla. And um, the ability to replace the um, uh, oil-fired power stations, gas-powered stations, and even coal power stations is not fast enough in order to uh, diminish the demand. And while while the demand is increasing for uh, oil, coal, and uh, natural gas, many um, oil companies have abandoned any further exploration. And the reason why they've abandoned it is they can't borrow the money to go and do the the $20 billion deals that are needed to be done to find major oil fields, or they can't get insurance on um, actually putting the project together. Uh, one of the largest companies in the insurance world is Swiss Re, and they said that coming, coming 2023, they will no longer be involved with the oil and gas sector. Um, and that's roughly 22% of all the insurance in that sector. So, so the, the the development will be that whatever oil has been found, such as the stuff that we have offshore here, that will be developed. But any new fields being explored um, uh, over the next five, seven, ten years, um, that exploration is dropping away. Uh, that means that the increase in demand will have to be met with existing fields. Uh, and most of the existing fields have an experience where roughly 3% of all the fields in the world um, are drained every year. So you, just, to, just to replace that 3% level, normally exploration would take place, but that exploration is not, not being done. So the net effect is uh, increasing oil prices over time, uh, which would benefit the province uh, as the oil offshore is being harvested while also the green energy and the critical metal, metals being harvested over the next number of um, decades has certainly put the province into good uh, stead for potentially having boom times here for quite a while. So we've seen this uh, noted acceleration in the transition to uh, energies other than um, oil and gas, uh, but uh, uh, we've seen fuel prices fluctuating wildly this past uh, year. That What were some of the influencing factors on, on skyrocketing fuel prices earlier in the year? Uh, so the biggest one, of course, was the Ukrainian war. Um, so Russia was one of the large, is still one of the largest producers of oil in the world, and their oil exports being blocked to a large degree, um, or to some degree, and with more of that happening in 2023, more to come. 
uh, means that there's a lot of oil just taken off the market. Then the uncertainty factor uh, drives up the price of insurance, which I just talked about, and the uh, potential then for um, an event happening such as an oil tanker or oil um, distributionary being disrupted continues as long as that war continues. But um, but more importantly, uh, it, it is the long-term effect of uh, increased costs, increased carbon taxes, et cetera, that will continue to drive up uh, the price of oil over time. So we've seen a drop in oil prices in recent weeks. Do we expect that trend to continue? Uh, a lot of that has been uh, as uh, companies, particularly the refineries. So, so in, in addition to less oil being uh, produced around the world or shipped around the world, really, because the Russians, the Russians are still have facilities in place so far. There's a possibility that there's an area in the northern Russia that was being managed by Chevron and Exxon. I think those are the two American companies. Um, that that may uh, end up no longer producing because the the technology, um, the know-how to continue to extract that oil, maintain and find further oil in that area, really resides with those um, uh, technicians from the, those companies. That is, that is, Russian engineers are not as good as American engineers when it comes to oil extraction, and whether they can continue to produce up in that area is is questionable. And if that area uh, loses production, it's uh, on permafrost. And if you go through a um, Russian winter where those um, pipes are allowed to freeze, they're, they're never thawing again. So there, there's a number of, of, key, of key aspects that, are, that have happened over the last period of time um, that affected the, the price of oil. The other factor was the um, refineries, primarily in the United States, and primarily with them going through uh, maintenance and shutdown uh, that occurs, it tends to be in September, October period. So that helped create that kind of bottleneck in that period of time that saw this really big spike in oil prices, and that's been alleviated uh, recently. That's that over time. So you know, next November, uh, September, still expect to see oil prices higher than uh, they were in you know June, July. Um, that uh, gets exaggerated as the overall uh, supply of oil eventually shrinks over time. I want to get back to this sense of optimism that you say you have uh, regarding the local economy a little later on in the show. But when we come back, I want to talk a bit more about the price of oil and its impact on the provincial government coffers right Mm -hmm. after this. Our guest today on On Target is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. And Larry, by now most Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have their $500 cost of living benefit check by now. The finance minister has said it was made possible because of increased revenue due to uh, record oil prices. But what kind of an impact do falling oil prices have on the budgetary process? Well, just let's just look uh, as a comparison to the original budget that was done up in uh, March. March of 2022, the forecast was that our, the revenue for the province was going to be $9 billion, $70 million. The fall update uh, showed an increase of $1.3 billion because oil prices were higher. I mean, that is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, 
And that's the, uh, and with that is the scary part because not only did revenue go up, but uh, expenses went up by half a billion. $504 million was the increase in expenses. And the scary part about those two numbers is the fact that we've never seen expenses drop when the re- oil revenue has dropped. It's all, I, I think you'd, you might have to go back to, uh, I can't even think of which premier it was, when we saw an actual cut in expenses. And the difficulty with that is that, that if indeed uh, something else untoward should happen, that um, that oil prices did drop. And maybe, maybe it is... You know, to the benefit of the world, maybe it is that um, the Ukrainian war does cease um, uh, suddenly um, or Putin passes away or something like that that could cause a sudden drop in the price of oil. That expense figure may not come down. And, And as a consequence, if the provincial government is going to make any adjustments to expenses, you want to do um, things like stop hiring when the unemployment rate is at record lows. You want you want to stop increasing expenses when the rest of the economy is trying to buy things, and you're trying to not bid against the provincial government in order to be able to get uh, lumber or concrete or pavement or whatever it is that you need. This is the ideal time to to do that. And in the past, we've you know I've been critical of the uh, government, whichever party is in there, because they haven't had a plan. Well, now we have the Green Report, that's one plan, and then there's the Health Accord, which is a second plan. So it, it really is the time for the provincial government to act. Within my optimism, the only thing that I'm pessimistic about is about that provincial deficit, uh, because in addition to the increase in expenses currently of 504 million, there's some refinancing that starts uh, next year meaning that uh, bonds that had been issued at very, very low interest rates will have to be reissued. And even though a uh, 3.5%, 4% interest rate doesn't sound like much, on this amount of money that we owe, to have a, an increase in interest rate means that that's an expense that we're going to have to tolerate um, for the next you know, um, 20, 30 years. So um, the optimism is there. The impact of increasing interest um, oil prices over time, I think, will certainly benefit the province. But in the short run, if something should happen in 2023, such as such as a dramatic uh, fall in oil prices, we could be left in a lurch going into a recession and needing an increase in government spending to help the poor if indeed layoffs pick up. Well, as you said, you know, there's some scary factors there, and it is scary to know just how much we rely on and and are influenced by um, oil revenue. Yes. Now, you know, in the transition away from from the uh, to green energy uh, projects will, you know, obviously still be developed, and if, if indeed uh, we end up with. Um, you know, some major mineral discoveries, further expansion of iron ore projects in Labrador, et cetera. Uh, and um, I don't know if you remember, but all the way back in 2012, there was a uh, uranium mine in the new Nazi of, um, nation uh, land. Uh, it was called Aurora, and it was subsequently taken over by a company called Paladin, but it was never developed. But uranium now coming back as being um, a um, back into favor as being a uh, source of energy that could solve a lot of the um, problems with uh, carbon-based uh, substitution, that those things will help. And, and over time, I think that we're going to be okay. It's more of 
the next two to three years if we get a crash happening in oil prices. Uranium, in other words, nuclear energy? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, nuclear energy has really, really had a terrible uh, time. I, I call it the, the baby seal problem. And uh, why I call it the baby seal problem is that I, you know, I travel a lot around the world and occasionally run into people who say, oh, you're from Newfoundland, you hunt those baby seals. And it's like, no, we haven't done that since like 1985. And I said, well, and I literally had somebody say this to me, get into an argument to explain to me how, no, they're killing 4 million baby seals every single year. And I'm like, no, no, they're not. And uh, at the end of it, giving them proof that it's impossible to do so because you'd require, you know, high-level machine guns and an entire army to kill that many seals in such a short period of time. But, you know, once that you do get, give them enough logic, they've actually said to me, where's my money going? Meaning the donations that they've been have, making to various um, uh, wildlife funds around the world. But the, the difficulty is that that picture of a seal bean club sticks in people's minds the same way that whenever I talk to initially bring up the discussion about nuclear power, people say, oh, yes, well, what about Chernobyl or Fukushima, uh, for example, or Three Mile Island, to which I point out that, yeah, those were all built in uh, in the case of the um, the uh, Chernobyl. It's a Soviet Union design from 1954. And I don't know if you remember what a, what a Lada was, such a lousy car here. So imagine using the metals from that type of a, uh, automobile, that type of technology. But even even uh, Fukushima was 1972 design, um, and it was designed using slide rules. So when you build modern nuclear power plants, it's a completely different design, and it's not designed in the same way, and it has infinitely more safety features. Um, so it takes a while for people to sort of broaden their mind to say, you know what, if you could go into all those coal-fired power plants, lift those coal-fired burners up, and replace it with what's called a small modular nuclear, nuclear reactor that was built in a factory and that is modern with extraordinary controls built into it, you could solve a lot of the world's carbon problems very, very easily, and you wouldn't have to rebuild the power lines. Um, you know, to, to give you an idea, there's, there's a um, electrical plant in Germany that we, that if you were using turbines, you'd have to have 4,000 turbines to replace the same power output as this small nuclear plant. So, you know, the the economic impact, or sorry, the environmental impact of 4,000 turbines going anywhere, plus what happens when the wind doesn't blow, all of that is taken care of by the nuclear uh, industry, but it does take people to unlearn what is stuck in their head about nuclear power. It isn't the same as something built by the Russians or the Soviet Union in 1954 or even built by the Americans in 1972. With uh, fuel prices uh, lowering again, what can we expect out of the, the budgetary process in the spring? That's yeah, really going to be interesting. Um, so a couple of things. One is that uh, I think we have uh, Suncor is um, bringing back uh, one, bringing into production the Terranova project again. So uh, more oil projects, more uh, further development, and and potential expansion of fields is probably going to be a factor. All of which uh, will be positive. Um, but um, the and uh, increase in exploration, particularly in the mineral sector with uh, potentially iron ore shipments increasing and iron ore value increasing over the next uh, year to year and a half. 
provided we don't go into a deep, deep recession, which I don't think that we're going to. Um, so that should be somewhat favorable. And hopefully at that point, we would be addressing some of the costs um, in order to get the cost level down. At the same time, though, the provincial government still does have an increase in um, the average age of Newfoundland and Labradorians, which means the older we get, the increased demand on an already strained healthcare system. So it's going to be an interesting time. One of the big uncertainties as we head into 2023, of course, is what's happening in Ukraine. I want to ask you a little bit about that, those influencing factors, and uh, some of the things to look forward to in the coming year when we come back right after this. Our guest today on On Target is Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Guest today, Larry Short, Senior Investment Advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. And of course, uh, Larry, you know as well as anyone that uh, one of those uh, factors that nobody seems to know where it's all going to go is the war in Ukraine. Uh, What are Putin's, uh, or for that matter, Zelensky's options? Will we see that war resolved or will it escalate? So I, I follow a guy by the name of Peter Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N, and you can find him um, on Twitter. You can find him on, um, the best is probably on uh, YouTube, where he, he's provided a series of lectures. Um, uh, and he's written a book recently talking about how the world is being reshaped um, as the world is breaking into trading blocks. So a lot of the, the discussion about how... Um, the North America is becoming a trading block where a lot of the manufacturing is shipping to um, Mexico. Uh, the U.S. is providing the financing and Canada is supplying the rocks. That's that's kind of where a lot of, um, you know, thought about many of the things we talked about today have come from, um, that that overall theme. And a part of that, and I, and I would urge you to have a look at, at his work because Zihan was one of the first and the only one, in fact, I can think of that predicted a war between Russia and the Ukraine. And he predicted that back in 2021. So uh, he's put a lot of thought into the motives of what Russia was thinking, what their hopes were, um, how they thought that they could invade within three days. Uh, they, they initially, how the Russians initially sent in a commando team of Spensnats, um, that equivalent to the American SEAL team teams um, to decapitate the Ukrainian government, and um, that failed. And from there, you know, we remember the 40-kilometer-long um, uh, train of uh, tanks, etc., that were headed into Russia, into Ukraine from Russia, and that ran out of gas, and they ran out of food. I mean, you don't send an army in to invade without supplies behind it. So um, he, in his thoughts, uh, where we're headed is the fact that the the Russians themselves uh, and the Ukrainians are setting up for what looks like one definitive battle that will probably happen in May. And why it will take to May is that um, it will be just after the uh, land has stopped uh, being frozen um, over that way and that uh, spring will, um, it will make it into a, a spring type of offensive. Within the two parties, the Russians are now training a approximately 500,000 new troops. Um, They're doing it rather poorly, but 500,000 troops is an overwhelming uh, mass of humans to send off uh, into battle. Reluctant troops. 
it oh, no, be no, no, no. This, yeah, there, there's, there's all sorts of talk about potential mutinies along the way. And then uh, at the same time, however, when the Russians did their hasty retreat um, in southern Ukraine, they actually left behind more equipment than what um, the Western world has given the Ukrainians up to this point in time. So the largest contributor of equipment to the Ukrainians for this war has actually come from the Russians, because in many cases, the Russian troops literally uh, jumped out of trucks and jumped out of tanks and ran because they knew that the tanks and the trucks themselves were being targeted by the drones. And all of that equipment was left behind. And and just to make it even more interesting, it was the Ukrainians who manufactured many of those equipment. That many of the missiles and many of the tanks and etc. Uh, used to be bought fr- uh, from the Ukrainians by the Russians over the years. So the Ukrainians are going to be better equipped going into springtime than they have been at any point in the war, while the Russians have more uh, more troops to throw into that horrible um, horrible battle. So more than likely, we're going to see a resolution um, between now and May. And along the way, we've also recognized that Putin's health is getting worse by the day. There's, um, you know, he's, he has some sort of either a Parkinson's or some other type of disease. And uh, it looks like uh, and uh, that the his physical health is, health is failing. On top of that, of course, there's uh, minor mutinies happening and just the outrage of the world and the sanctions that are cutting into uh, just about everyone um, affecting everybody in Russia. Then on top of that has been the brain drain. Anybody who has money, connections, uh, etc., have gone on a plane and flown out of Russia to not have um, their children um, uh, uh, taken to be you know, um, drafted into the war effort. So a lot of strain on both sides, uh, but uh, his estimation is that it will come to a head between now and May. When you say come to a head. <laughs> uh, one way or the other. That there should be a resolution of that war in some form or the other between now and the end of May. I think the big fear, though, is that uh, Putin, in his desperation, uh, will, and he's he hasn't ruled this out, uh, will move to nuclear um, uh, weapons. Yes, yeah, so two, two points there. One is that uh, nu- the, the tactical nuclear weapons that were discussed for, uh, you know, that has come into discussion, they were designed against, uh, to use against masses that were much larger than what um, the, the war effort has provided to, to date. That is, using a tactical nuclear weapon is basically bombing a battleground, hoping that uh, you can reduce the, um, you know, increase the casualties on the other side. But it does cause fallout. And um, and the type of targets that it was initially designed for was really against NATO airfields, et cetera. So to go in and, and, and to do that into Ukraine um, and have the fallout actually literally fall into um, Russia itself, highly doubtful. It's more of a saber rattling. Um, and in addition to that, the, the reprisals that will come from the world, not just from uh, the West from China, uh, you know, their supposed ally, and certainly Turkey uh, would certainly um, be so sufficient as to completely isolate any victory that the Russians could possibly walk away with. It's kind of like uh, wiping the board uh, clean in a poker game and not having enough money to pay the rent um, at the end of the month. So, you know, it, it, there's always a possibility, but the probability is highly unlikely. 
Regardless of uh, how or when uh, this comes to an end, the reverberations no doubt are going to be felt for years to come. And you mentioned these trading blocks. But uh, before we leave, and we've only got about four minutes left, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the highlights uh, that you see for the province in particular as we head into 2023. Well, the first one is, of course, the oil uh, revenue uh, increasing more than likely unless we get a complete uh, recession and a collapse in the oil price, and I don't think that that's that's going to happen at all. Um, I think that the uh, the exploration uh, in the mining sector is really really going to boom and turn uh, even more dramatic um, again because of the fact that we have the potential for not just exploring using green energy, but also you know someday maybe even uh, running a mine on uh, either uh, wind power or small hydro power. And even eventually, maybe even manufacturing uh, using it, uh, using um, uh, green energy. So all of those things means more money coming into the province. Um, and then the housing sector, uh, with a 44% increase in housing starts, that's really, really quite uh, something. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm very, very optimistic about the province. I'm a little worried about the deficit, but I think uh, overall, uh, 2023 is going to be even better than 2022. And, you know, in terms of all of these pressures that a lot of us are facing, you know, regardless of how well the economy is doing, individuals are feeling the pinch on all ends, food prices, not the least of which. Uh, do we expect to see any relief in that regard at all? I've seen just a hint of uh, food food prices starting to come down a bit. But, you know, it, it, it probably means that re- rather than prices actually declining, uh, it'll probably just stop increasing as much. Um, and and that's uh, you know one worry that, uh, that that people have. But again, the same thoughts as as with interest rates increasing is the fact that we have in the past seen seen interest rates in this province in this country of twenty percent. You know, I remember somebody having a mortgage of twenty five percent. We do adjust, um, and salaries will adjust over time because. Again, we have a labor shortage um, arising, um, and we may actually start getting some increase in uh, immigration here as well. So um, it's not necessarily that we're going to see a major drop in costs, but we may see an increase in uh, salaries um, over the next number of years. Larry Short, a, a pleasure as always. If we're not speaking before then, all the best to you now this holiday season. Uh, thank you so much. And anybody who's looking for, you know, thoughts and comments, I am on Twitter at, at Larry underscore short. And you can tune in there and uh, subscribe uh, and become a follower. And um, by all means, any um, questions that arise, you can post them uh, in on Twitter. Interesting information for sure. Larry Short is a senior investment advisor with Short Financial, a branch of IA Private Wealth in St. John's. Once again, thanks very much. My pleasure. And we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk with the Minister of Children, Seniors and Social Development. I hope I got that right going off memory now. Um, John Abbott, when we come back tomorrow, stay tuned for that. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening.